Well, around mid-October, an intense cultural divide usually occurs throughout our country every year. Living rooms and dinner tables find themselves in, in really deep schisms. Mom groups on Facebook begin to argue and vent with one another. There's discussion around this issue at our BFGs, at get-togethers, even at church, there can be this great divide. And it's over the question, a pressing question, when is it appropriate to start listening to Christmas music? Can you listen to Christmas carols in early November, before Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving? Do you have to wait to December to start listening to Christmas straight to you, George Strait? Or is Christmas music something you can listen to all year long? There are even those kind of weirdos among us. Because all heated debates, there, there's always two extremes on both sides, and we're called to pick a camp, which one we fall into. That's just the way the world works now. And on this issue, if you're like Caitlin Dorson, I mean, we take down the last decoration at VBS. And she is in her car listening to, rocking around the Christmas tree on the way home that night. Or if you're like my wife, Danae, who's just not a fan of Christmas music at all, she may mumble a Dean Crosby classic on Christmas morning. There's two extremes there. Uh, it, it's all year long or maybe just a little bit. But, but it's this huge divide among us, when can we start listening to Christmas music? Well, the prophet Isaiah began singing about Christmas 700 years before it occurred. And we see that throughout the book of Isaiah as there is national turmoil. Israel has been divided into a northern and southern kingdom, Samaria and Judah. And there is division, and there is war, and there is idolatry. Part of this divide is because Israel has given themselves over to pagan nations' idols. And, and the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, they are making a, their own alliances with, with nations like Syria or the Assyrians. And we're going to see even the Egyptians are a part of, of all of this chaos and all of this division and these idolatrous alliances. And all along the way, even from chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book, Isaiah seems to be saying to us over and over again, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Among all of the war, all of the chaos, all of the sin, he's singing, declaring to us that Christmas has actually already come in this odd way. There's a king who is going to fix it all, God himself, and he will come in a way that you can't even figure out at this time. You can't even wrap your mind around a king who is God himself. Notice verse one, he says, behold my servant 
whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Uh, Amidst all of the prophecy of war and chaos and and the judgment of idolatry, over and over Isaiah just kind of stops and says, look, but look, there's a king. And he says this as if he is already there. Here he's going to begin talking about the Babylonian captivity and how the people of God will be delivered from that. And it's like he stops amidst it all, talking about all of these pagan kings and all uh, all of this chaos. He stops and says, but behold, don't forget there is a servant that you can look to. Now, throughout the Bible, the word servant that Isaiah, he he wants to arrest our attention here. Look, behold, my servant, God says. God calls people throughout scripture as servants, prophets, kings, deliverers. The judges are called the servants of God. They do his bidding. They work on his behalf. They are called out to perform certain acts of deliverance for the people of God. And as we see in Isaiah, this servant is who we've called already Emmanuel, the sign that will be given. This servant is the child king who is God, the root of David. Isaiah is saying, don't forget what I've already told you. As I talk about judgment, as I talk about despair and darkness, behold the servant. Don't forget. Don't forget. God's in control. He's got a servant whom he will uphold. The word there means to care for or to keep or make successful. His chosen, one that he has set his love and affection on. The word chosen there, it refers to a kingly title. God has, God has chosen for himself a king who he will take care of, who he will make successful. But notice the last part or, or the last part of that section there when he says, in whom my soul delights. He has great pleasure in this king. Now, the description there is of an affectionate choice of a king that God has. And it's actually the way that David is described when David is chosen as king. God picks a king after his own heart. It doesn't mean that David's heart was pure, It means that God's heart was for David. God chose David to be king. God set his love upon David. And here there's another king, another servant that God will set his love upon. And notice what he will do. He will put his spirit upon him. As Clay talked about last week, the very spirit of God will rest upon this king. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Spirit comes and it it empowers people to do great things, great feats of deliverances. We read through the judges and we see how God empowers the judges to be saviors and deliverers for God's people, but it seems as though the Spirit only acts in these moments, these blips to do what God wants. Here God says when this king comes, the Spirit will rest upon him. There is a permanent resting upon the king. Because it will be the kingdom itself in the form of the spirit that rests upon him. That's who this king is. This is is the permanent kingdom of God that will rest on this servant. And notice what he will do. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Just to be honest with you, as you read through Isaiah and you're trying to figure out what's going on with Syria and the Syrians and the Egyptians and all of these pagan nations, it really gets confusing. When is this happening? When is this going to happen? What is he talking about here? 
Well, his point here is this servant will come and all that is t- that tangled mess of chaos, he will make it right. That's what justice means in Isaiah, is that this king will come and make it right. He will fix it. He will make it make sense. The sin, the judging of the enemies. He will make it right. Now, we know who this king is. There's no, there's no reason to, to act like it's a secret at this point. Because we know that Jesus goes down to the Jordan River to his cousin, John the Baptist, and is immersed in the waters. And as he comes up, what happens? The Spirit comes down and rests on him like a dove. And what does the Father from heaven say? Behold, <laughs> this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's not just an attaboy from God. That is, this is the king I've been telling you about. This is him, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. The spirit of the kingdom comes and rests upon him. Now, all of this, as we keep talking about, happens in the context of war and chaos. And, And biblically, all of this is a description of a warrior Shepherd kings. David was a shepherd king. Shepherds were known as just sort of these backwood warriors fighting lions and bears. And God says, I'm going to raise up my own warrior king who will fight the lions and bears among the nations for you. And I will give him my spirit. And so all of this is a description of a warrior king who will come and make it right. And by the spirit, by the spirit, he will wage war against everything that opposes God. And it's one of the things we have to know about Christmas. Christmas is warfare. It is God sending his warrior king into the world by his spirit to wage war against the enemies of God and everything that opposes God. And sometimes we lose that singing Silent Night because in the spiritual realm, it wasn't a silent night when Jesus was born. There were shriekings of demons. And we know the story of the shepherds, right? They're watching their flock. And what happens? God rips the sky wide open and gives them a glimpse into the host of heaven, which is the armies of heaven, angelic wraith-like creatures who are ready to wage war because this child is born and these shepherds on the hillside are struck and they are scared to death. Why? Because in the end, God is waging war. The Spirit has brought forth a warrior king who the Spirit of God will come and rest upon. And we can't lose that with Christmas. It is God's warfare on our behalf. Jesus has come to bring about justice in the earth and make things right. And it will require warfare with sin and death and Satan. It's one of the reasons the demons, when they see Jesus walking around teaching and in the synagogues, they run up to him and say, we know you're the Holy One of Israel. Have you come to destroy us? And it should be translated, have you come to destroy us right now? Or do we have any time left? The spirit realm knows this baby has come to wage war. And here Isaiah says, he will come wage war. You look around, it's chaos, it's turmoil. There's one who will come and fix it all. But what does 
the baby, <laughs> Jesus as a baby. He's a warrior king, but why does he come as a baby? And why does he take the form of, uh, of, of a person who is weak and helpless? Well, what does that teach us about the warrior king? Well, first of all, it teaches us that he's humble. Notice verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. He will not make a big to-do about his arrival. This king's coming will be discreet. There will be no cosmic announcement to everybody. There will be no campaign signs. Think about this. The greatest king, the most powerful, mighty king that's ever lived he came during a time where there was no social media. Now, if we were planning this, we would say, well, you've got to wait. You've you got to wait to the early 2000s to come, Jesus, so everyone will know, and we can put it on Facebook, and we can make YouTube videos, and we can let everyone know you're here. God says, no, he's not even going to make it known when he arrives. The world won't know. It will be hidden no Times Square announcement. In Matthew chapter 12, this whole section is quoted. And Jesus is healing the sick at that time. He's performing miracles. And then he walks around and says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. He, he's discreet. He's humble. He's, in, in some sense, this coming is meant to be private. We see his humility as he comes to the barn. <laughs> Notice next we see his gentleness. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. Now think about a single blade of, of wheat or grass. Think about how alone by itself it is weak, it is not strong. And then imagine that, that blade of grass, wheat, however you want to think about it. Hey, I don't know what you're thinking about. But think about that one single blade being pushed down over and over and trampled, trampled, mowed down. It, had, it barely has any life left in it. Well, this cosmic warrior with all this might and with all this power is able to reach down and touch this single blade that has been mowed over and straighten it up without destroying it. The power of God rests in his hands, but he can reach down to a bruised and broken reed and stand it up without destroying it. Now, that, that's gentleness, right? That's the gentleness of God's king, of his warrior. Notice, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Imagine a candle that is barely flickering. It's wet, it's damp. There's wind blowing on it. It, it. You see the light. You don't see the light. It's barely there. Well, this cosmic warrior is able to approach this candle with all of God's galactic strength within him. He's able to go to this candle, this wick, and he's able to hold it up and not blow it out with his breath. That's gentleness. That's control. That is what this cosmic warrior will look like. He should scare you to death, but he can reach down and touch you and not destroy you. That's who this king will be. And we see that on Christmas. 
We see the gentleness of God, the power that could obliterate the universe was in a feed trough and in the form of a baby's hand reached up and grabbed his father's finger and squeezed it and didn't break it. That is the gentleness of God on display. That is the gentleness of Christmas that has come not to destroy us. How amazing is that? But notice we see his patience. He will faithfully bring about justice. He's going to do it. He's going to judge God's enemies. He's going to judge sin. He's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things right. And he will faithfully do it. The the point here is he will not give up. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Meaning he will not be disheartened in this task. He will not be thwarted or distracted in this task. You can even translate the word discouraged there as crushed. We think about Jesus, he looks down on the city of Jerusalem and he has compassion, meaning he gets sick at his stomach and he wants to vomit and he weeps because the the people are like sheep without a shepherd and you think, is he going to give up on us? Is it just too much for him? In the garden, when he is sweating drops of blood out of terror as he is about to face the cross, the wrath of God, and, and he is saying, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. And we're wondering, is he going to give up? Is he going to be crushed and discouraged? And, and, And is he going to stop on our behalf? And yet he says, not my will, but thy will be done. He will not be discouraged until he has established justice. Notice, in the earth, referring to the physical created order, he will make everything right. The coastlands, the peoples of the earth, geopolitical boundaries, cultures, they all wait for his law, his rule of righteousness that will harness all cultures and every molecule on the planet. In the book of Isaiah, justice is, it's multifaceted. As you read through the book, you see God talking about making things right in the heart of men, judging the enemies of God, but he also makes things right in the created order. You have animals that should be devouring each other and they're, they're playing together. You have little babies sticking their, their hand in the holes of vipers. Isaiah paints that picture that even the created order will be at peace because he will bring it. This king will make it right. He will get rid of sin and the curse of death and everything will be at peace under his rule, including the people of the earth. And he will do it, he's pointing out here, with patience. He will not give up. He will not be discouraged. It may take thousands of years to do it according to his plan, but he will do it. And we see the patience of Jesus in the incarnation I mean, the moment Adam partakes of the fruit, we should have been broken and snuffed out, judgment raining down. But he waits. He waits thousands and thousands and thousands of years, generation, 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 generation. He endures patiently with Israel in the Old Testament. And then he is so patient 
so patient and so kind. He takes on the form of man, 100% man, 100% God, and lives 33 years on the earth. And 30 of those years was just doing mundane things. Just, just being a man. He, he endured all of that impatience to make it all right. That is the patience of God that we see at Christmas. The picture of Christmas this year should remind you of God's humble, gentle patience in making all things new. The picture itself of the baby, the story itself of Christmas is a picture of gentleness, right? This this cosmic warrior doesn't wipe us out. He comes in the form of a helpless baby because he's gentle. And he's gentle to those of us who are bruised and broken reeds, right? I think all of us here today would say, because of sin, you can feel the bruises. You can feel the brokenness. Just like someone who's been abused by others, you may be here today and you're trying to cover those bruises up. You're trying to look pretty for Christmas. But you know your life's not pretty. You know it's a mess because of sin. And you know you're not right. You know you're broken. The things that God would require of you, you are broken and you can't do it. And there's things that you have broken. And, and some of us feel like, like the flickering candle. I don't have much left, God. And, and, and the presence of Jesus today feels crushing to you. He is perfect and he is righteous, and I know that I am not. And I would come to him like a flickering candle today, and his righteousness would blow me out. I, it would destroy me. I would have nothing to give him, no light within me to give him. That's how we feel. Well, I've got good news for you today. Jesus hasn't come into the world like we would. There's people in our life who we want to fix, right? And we come to them and we say, you look at me right now. And you look at me and you do what I say and I will fix you. Well, Jesus hasn't come to fix us. He's come to restore us to himself. And that requires humble, gentle patience with us. He, in humility, becomes a man to live a life to endure our sin on the cross. Like a lamb led to slaughter, he is silent, he is humble. He endures the injustice of our sin so that we can be made just before him. That's how gentle, that's how patient he is with us. He's come to restore us which requires patience. And if you believe and you follow Jesus today, you trust in him, he will be patient with you. He's got plenty of time, by the way. You see, we get frustrated with ourselves. As Christians, when you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you're reading your Bible, you realize, I want to be better. And we get impatient with ourselves. We get frustrated with ourselves. Jesus isn't frustrated with you. He knows he's got eternity to make it better. You're not going to fix it. 
And what he wants more than anything is that you to trust him, to be restored to him, to love and follow him, and he will be patient with you. He died for you. That's the extent of his patience, his gentleness and humility. He's not crushed by your sin because he was crushed for your sin. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit of those, to those who walk in it. Why should we trust what he says? It's because he is the creator. Now, verse 5, he says, thus says God the Lord. Now, this is Yahweh. This is the name he gave to Moses. He says, I want you to go deliver my people from Egypt. And Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am who I am, which means I do what I say I do. So when I tell you I'm going to deliver my people from Egypt, I'll do it. And you just tell them. that They're going to know me according to my promises. I'm going to promise them something, and then I'm going to do it. And that's how they're going to know me. I do what I say. I am who I am. Yahweh. And here he says, Yahweh is the creator. And notice the way he describes creation. The Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread the earth and what comes from it. A few weeks ago, I had a map in my office. I was like, I've had that map for like 15 years and I want to put it on my wall. No one was there to help me. And so I took this map, it's a really big map. And I began to spread it out on the wall, and it just kept rolling, rolling, rolling. And so then I'm like, I'm getting attacked, and I'm going to start at one corner, and I put it in the corner, and then the whole thing rolls over, and it rips, and it shreds. That didn't happen at creation, by the way. When God created the universe, he spread his hands and said, let there be light, and there was light. And he spoke it all into existence, and he didn't have any trouble doing it. It's like someone rolling out a scroll with great ease. And by the way, it's not flat. If there's any of those of you who are here today, this is a metaphor. The ease at which he creates everything and gives life and sustains life down to the soul of men. What makes us who we are, it comes from him. He is the one who created all things and the one who created all things with his word has given us his word and so we can trust him according to his word. Notice verse six, I am the Lord. It's redundant. I am who I am. I am who I am. I do what I say. I do what I say. I do what I say. It's redundant and he says, I called you in righteousness, meaning I called you to my myself to do what is right. I'm going to make you a people of righteousness, but I'm always going to do what's right for you. And I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant people, a light for the nations. What he says here is my plans for human history will come through you. The Messiah comes from Israel. And so God says, I have to take care of you. Because my plans for the universe come through you. And so you can trust me. I created the universe. I'm going to take care of you. I will lead you by the hand and keep you. Verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring forth the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who sat in darkness. Now, this probably refers to the Babylonian captivity. And after 70 years, God will deliver his people just as he said, but it's It's also a description of how the promise through Israel will bring forth all who are in sin and all who are in darkness. He will do it. He will act according to his people for his namesake in all the earth. In verse 8, again, he says, I am the Lord. 
I do what I say. I do what I say. I do what I say. Notice that is my name. That's how I make myself famous. That's how I want to be known in the earth as the one who always does what he says. And this glory, my glory, which is his his weight and his gravity of his word, of his person, will be on display in the world by him always doing what he says. And he will not give his praise to carved idols. Now, why is that important? Well, in Israel right now, they're, they're, they're chasing after these pagan nations. And they're going to these pagan kings and going, you can help us. You have armies, you have militaries, you can help us make alliances with them. Well, making alliances with these pagan kings meant making alliances with their false gods. And what God is saying to his people here is they will not deliver you. I'm the only one who's promised to deliver you and I'm the only one who will deliver you and I will not give that praise and I will not give that trust to anybody else. Stop chasing after these false gods and he punishes them for it. Then he comes back and delivers them. He doesn't go back on his word. And all of those alliances turn bad. God punishes the Assyrians and then he punishes Judah. And that happens over and over because God says, I'm the only one who can take care of you and that's how I want to be known. And that's what we see at Christmas. Paul talks about seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That glory that has come and taken on flesh to fulfill all of God's promises for you. Yahweh took on flesh to do what Yahweh said he would do. And in the manger, the promise takes on flesh. You do realize Jesus is the promise. The Word, the Word was made flesh. The promise to you took on flesh to fulfill everything he said he would do for you. And, and Jesus is God's promise. It's his, he is his covenant to you. Now, now, I need you to listen to this part. This is kind of where we go just a little deep here. It's not cotton candy for Jesus in this moment, but, but hold on and listen. And this will change your life and change your perspective on the gospel. Jesus is God's promises to you first meaning the promise to deliver you from sin because he said he would because of the cross when you believe in him. His righteousness is God's promise to you. The resurrection is God's promise to you in flesh form. But Jesus is also your promise to God. Jesus is the covenant in full. What God has promised you and what you have to promise God to get to heaven He is your righteousness. He is your death for your sin. He is your resurrection. He is your kingdom. Jesus is the covenant all together for God and for you. And so the question here is if if this is who the promise keeper is, why would you give such allegiance to anybody else on the planet or anything else on the... He's done it all. He is the covenant. He is the promise. So why would, you, why would you give hope that only he deserves over to failed promise givers and takers? Why would you do that? Why would you give worship over to things who, that will not deliver on their promises to you? In, in Isaiah chapter 2, it begins this way, or it, the, the chapter ends this way, but the book of Isaiah begins this way, where God says, on the day of judgment, they 
the peoples will toss their idols in the ditch. Meaning, on the day of judgment, when this warrior comes in and everybody sees him, they're going to be holding these little carved images and going, will you deliver me? Ain't no way you're delivering me. Throw them away. A little carved golden image is going to deliver you from judgment? Really? That's idiotic and stupid. And that's the way this story will end. Is we, even we will stand before Jesus when he rips the sky open and say, why did I trust anything else? Why did I believe in anything else but you? You did it. You fulfilled all your promises to me. And so Christmas is a great time. We talk about the pre-Christmas purge when we get rid of things to make room for Christmas. Well, maybe you need to have a pre-Christmas purge today and get rid of all your idols that you're trusting in. Maybe you need to say, why in the world would I trust in stuff and gadgets to deliver me? The, the despair and misery that I feel in my soul and if I just go buy this thing it, it will give me happiness and then it lasts for a time and then it goes away why would I do that when the cosmic galactic warrior God of the universe is for me why would I not just trust him why do I give myself over to to others to do what only Jesus can do for me Everyone else in your life is sinful and they're not sovereign. Why do you trust them the way you should only trust the sinless and sovereign king of the... Why do you do that? You, you wind up disappointed and frustrated with other people. Why? Why do you trust yourself like you do? When problems and situations occur and you say, I can fix it. Just give me a little time. Let me Google it, YouTube it. Find something on Pinterest. I can do it. I can fix it. And we can't fix it. Day after day after day, God is coming in and saying, you can't fix it. Stop giving my glory to your little idols. And stop praising the idol in the mirror. And just trust me. Because I always do what I say. That's what Isaiah says, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Isaiah says, you can trust me and God because we've told you everything that would happen and it has come to pass. And now I'm going to tell you some new things, some new things that God's going to do for you. I'm going to declare these things to you before they spring up. Now, the word spring forth means to even germinate. These things aren't even in motion at this time. They, they haven't even come into existence at this time. And I'm going to tell you that they're going to happen. Now, this is the point of prophecy in the Bible. We often think about prophecy, and it's just sort of this cool fascination, Christian entertainment. No, prophecy is God declaring to you, he knows what's going to happen next because he's in control. Prophecy reminds you he is sovereign, but also he's good. He always does what is good for his people, and we see that in the Bible. You see, we're racked with anxiety because we don't know what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next? And is it going to be for my good? Are these things going to turn out the way that I want? And we don't know. And that's where anxiety comes from. God's not anxious. He knows what's going to happen next and he's in control and he calls us to trust him. And that's why at times he tells us what's going to happen. And this is why Isaiah is such a great special guest preacher at Christmas. 
is because he speaks of Jesus 700 years before Jesus is there. He talks as if he's already there. Because Isaiah says if God has said it will happen, it's essentially already happened. Now, Isaiah would call, get this, Isaiah calls the people to live as, or, or Isaiah speaks as if it has already happened, but then calls us to live as if it's already happened. He speaks as if it has and is happening. We are to live in light of Christmas as if it has and is happening. That's how we're supposed to live our life. Because we know when the squall of Emmanuel happened in that barn, it was happening. <laughs> the kingdom had come. The kingdom is there. And we know the kingdom's been here ever since. This is why Jesus would walk around as he is performing signs and wonders and he's healing the sick. What is he saying over and over? The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. And when Jesus left, he didn't take the kingdom with him. What did he tell his disciples? I'm going to give you the spirit. I'm going to give you my presence. The same kingdom presence that anointed him, he gives to his followers to be witnesses. And we read in the New Testament that this, that spirit indwells us and begins to change us. And so the kingdom that is coming has already come. And the kingdom that is coming is here right now. It's here. The same presence of the kingdom that was there in Bethlehem is here this morning in those who believe in Jesus and those who are following Jesus. The kingdom is at hand right here. This is Christmas morning. It's Christmas every day for the believer. The kingdom is at hand. And this is why Paul would say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old has passed away and the new has come. What Isaiah is referring to here. Everything God has said about his kingdom, it has come to pass. It has come to pass. And the old, it is passing away. But this new kingdom lives in you. You are the new creation that Paul is talking about here. You are the new thing that has come to pass because the kingdom lives in you. And so what does that look like? Well, if the kingdom lives in us and is making us a new creation, we have to live as those who are being made new. Humble, patient, gentle, just like Jesus, right? Because we know the war that is coming, but we can be humble, patient, and gentle just like Jesus. This kingdom begins within us. We are the sign the kingdom is at hand. That means we're not fearful and panicky. That was one reason the word kept coming to Israel is I know it looks crazy, but chill out. Relax. By the way, that's 90% of... The Christian life is just relax, chill out. God's already told you the whole story. Like, relax. And so we know what Isaiah said would come has come. He didn't just, and he hasn't just told us of something's coming. He's given us what is to come, to pass, the new that means you're going to walk into family Christmas this week and you're going to say to your relatives, I'm about to tell you some things that are going to come to pass before they spring up. That's how you're going to greet everyone this week, just like Isaiah. But if the Spirit lives within you, you're going to show up and you're just not going to be a contrarian. You see, some of us like to walk in a room and we just look around and say, everybody here's stupid. 
And I know your view of politics and I know your view of COVID policies and you got a mask on and that irritates me and I'm just going to let you know about it. No, if the kingdom is at hand, we can be gentle and we can be kind and we can be patient. We don't have to be fretful. We can, we can walk around this week and say, it's a great time to be a Christian. The rest of the world is, ah, scared to death. What's going to happen? We got Optimus Prime variant out and it's just crazy. <laughs> I said that the wrong way. I know. I think that, anyway, didn't mean to say it that way. But everybody's crazy and we of all people are at peace. And in the same way we start singing silver bells in October, amidst political unrest, natural disasters, family schisms, unpaid medical bills, we're those weirdos 24-7, 52 weeks a year, 365 days of the year. We're singing like it's the first Noel as far as the curse is found. Because it's not always Christmas, but it's always time for Christmas songs.